For some people in life, such a large degree of their potential is in fact permanent potential. If you understand that being born into this world, we're all different, we all have different temperaments, and as our lives unfold, we manifest along the way we have different natural talents and abilities. And all of us are different. What is very easy for one person in terms of learning the piano and you end up with a child prodigy is the most difficult thing in the world for someone else. So that our talents, gifts, and abilities often lead us toward the things that we do. And then in the Christian life, when you're born again, God adds to that. So that there is a very real sense in which any real talent and ability you have, you should give God the glory for it. And even movie stars in Hollywood on Oscar night or whatever often will say, I just want to thank God, you know. Whatever that means to them. There is such a, a truth to the fact that whatever great gifts you have, God should get the glory. When you're born again, God sort of plants within you, severally as He wills, the Bible says, spiritual gifts. As time rolls by and you're growing in the Lord, God intends to pull those gifts out to the surface and have them blossom forth so that it begins with this great work within you and continues to be that. But it also then begins to manifest through you to the blessing of many other lives. And that is something really that we should all crave and pursue after. And it's all about the leading of the Spirit, the Spirit filling your life. I've entitled this message, Spirit-Filled Ability. Because everything that goes on here in chapter 7 and verse 10 down through 18 really has that at the heart of it. Though we have here the Son of God, who obviously was so mightily empowered in so many ways, at the same time, what goes on here really happens through the work of the Spirit, and in, in many ways, God wants to do a similar thing with us. I'd like to pick up with verse 10, if we could. And we read here, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. As you remember... He said uh, his time had not yet come, and he meant in that sense to go to the feast because the Jews, the religious leaders, wanted to kill him. So he had effectively a price on his head. He was a hunted man. They wanted to murder him. So everything that he did had to happen according to the Father's plan, not only for effectiveness, but because in the midst of the will of God, you're invincible until your time is through. So going up at the right time, though they wanted to murder him, in the will and the protection of God, he went up, as it were, with invincibility, because in the long-term plan, he knew his time to die had not come yet. But the timing was critical. So when it comes, his brothers have gone up, and in verse 10, he goes to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret, which would have been along those mountains, going through Samaria, rather than along the uh, Jordan Valley where all the thousands and thousands of pilgrims would have been traveling along, all the caravans and all of that. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and they said, Where is he? And there was much complaining or murmuring among the people concerning him. The idea is that they were, as it says here, they were talking secretly. Some said he is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So... 
before he actually came out publicly there at the feast, there's all these secret discussions about him. Some think he's good, some think he's evil, some think he's deceiving the people. But notice in verse 13, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So this was all quiet, all secret, and even for the best among them, there was a cowardice that was going on. There was a lack of willingness to speak openly about him. And among the worst of them, an even greater cowardice. And I'll touch on that in a few minutes. Now, we read in verse 14 about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. And he would have taught right up there on the temple mount where we just saw it. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered, and he said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. There's four things I want to touch on as we just move through here. The first thing that I see here is his spirit-filled courage. Spirit-filled courage. The second thing is his spirit-filled ability. The third is his spirit-filled confirmations. And the fourth is his spirit-filled motivation. We'll just touch on that at the end. Courage, ability, confirmations, and motivation. All from his spirit-filled life. To begin with, let's look at his spirit-filled courage here. It says here that he went up finally. And in verse 14 it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Before that, you find all these guys, and they're, they're talking about him, but it's secretly. One of the things that becomes very obvious when you look at the lives of this, these religious leaders is how sinful they really were. I mean, in only a few verses, they, they get into this big discussion with him about Moses and the teaching of Moses. And in all reality, if you think about the fact that they thought they were the great custodians of the law of God and the great scholars, and so careful to obey it, it's fascinating to me that the Ten Commandments so clearly says, Thou shalt not kill. And here they are plotting to kill and murder Jesus Christ. You understand how sinful these people were. Not, this is not all the Jews. When it says the Jews, it's the religious leaders, the corrupt religious leaders. The bottom line is this. Sin makes you a coward. Sin makes you a coward. Think about that. You see, all sin brings with it guilt, right? All sin brings with it this uncertainty. And if it's, you know... Whatever kind of sin, there's often the idea that what happens if you're caught, um, you know, all the issues of sin are so destructive that in the end, they rob you of boldness. Sin robs you of a feeling of decency so that a natural, exuberant vitality for life is not there. And the whole idea of deception 
You know the old line from the play? I think it's Shakespeare. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. You ever heard that one? Well, all of that, in the end, robs you of your boldness. It turns you into somewhat of a coward. These Jews want to kill Jesus, but they're sneaking around, and all their conversations are in secret. So that you read of them, and it says, No one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. In Proverbs 28.1, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Depending on your sin, there's a great deal of paranoia that comes with it. I remember as um, a dope dealer driving along in my car in the days before I became a Christian. And basically, I probably looked more in the rearview mirror than I did out the front of my car. Some of you can probably identify with that. Anybody here can identify with that from your days of sin? Two of you. Thank you for being honest. Those of you that speed habitually live that way now. We know that the fast track and all the cameras on the freeway are rapidly changing that. Sometimes you find safety in numbers, don't you? Everybody's going 80, so you go 80 with the pack. Figure, well, they can't stop all of us. Nor do they try. They'll just pick one of you off. You know how that is. But sin makes you a coward. Even if there is a sense in which outwardly you often behave very bold and courageous in terms of who you are, what you're doing. But in general, sin so works within you as to make you a coward. On the other hand, and we see this in contrast with Jesus, righteousness makes you courageous. That's one of the greatest things. Because in the end, it takes a great deal of courage to stand against people around you in the Christian life. And it takes a great deal of courage to step out in faith when you hear the voice of God, sense the call of God and the move of God, and people around don't hear it like you do, courage is a critical part of the Christian life. But the great thing is, it's something that's just there if you walk with God. So that here we read of Jesus, and it says in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast. In other words, at the point in time when there would be the vast majority of the people there. You know how people show up late for things? You know how sometimes you show up late for church? No. But sometimes people are late for things, and so with people trickling in, long journey and hard travel, by the middle of the feast, it would have been the greatest crowd. That's the point where he comes out and begins to teach. So that that is a courageous thing right there. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. Knowing his timing was right, knowing the Father was with him, knowing he had waited on God, he was able to have the courage to stand out in the middle of all these people and tell them the truth and tell it in the right way. You know, if you think about it, this is the kind of courage that enables you to advance the kingdom. If you submit to the pressure of your peers in your life, the ungodly ones, you're going to move down to their level, right? How many know what peer pressure is? It's something that begins in high school and never leaves, right? So it's the most important thing in your life in high school 
And then it goes on to plague you the rest of your life. The Bible calls it the fear of man. If you succumb to the pressure of your peers, you will move down to their level. On the other hand, as Jesus was doing here, if you will speak your own beliefs to your peers, you will invite them up to your level. And for the Christian, that's up into heavenly places and fellowship with God and freedom and peace and all of that. You see, look at it this way. I like to look at it this way. If you move with the crowd, you'll get no farther than the crowd. And generally, the crowd is an expression of the shallow mindset dictated by the prevailing mores and philosophies of the day, right? So that if you move with the crowd, you get no further than the crowd. One way I like to look at it is that if you have 40 million people who have a dumb idea... It's still a dumb idea, right? I mean, look at some of the presidents who get elected. What does that reflect to you? Look at a lot of the people in power. I mean, I remember in the Desert Storm War, when we just about got Saddam Hussein. And then all of a sudden it was over. All the people in that country, so many of them, were looking at him like he was the unsung hero. And you watch these people on TV and you think, how could these people be so stupid? This guy hates them. And all he wants is power. 40 million people backing a dumb idea is still a dumb idea. So that you move with the crowd, you get no further than the crowd. For the Christian, there must be a sense of independence that's determined by the scripture, determined by the truth, that drives your life. And the great thing is, is in contrast to what the Proverbs say about the wicked man, Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. On the other hand, it says, But the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. You know, recently we had the brother from India, remember, that came to visit us, Vishal. And I was talking to John Turner afterwards about his trip there. And he was in a missionary prayer meeting. And they were praying for India. And God put it on his heart to go to India. Well, he had never been to India. He had never had a burden for India. He had never planned on going to India. Anyway, make a long story short. Next thing you know, he finds himself in a 10-hour cab ride in India. In this immense population, people wandering everywhere in the streets. And in his words, the cab driver was driving through the multitudes like he believed in reincarnation. (laughs) So we die, we'll come back, you know? Maybe I'll get a bigger cab. There we are, and the next thing you know, he's out on the streets, he's witnessing to tourists, and uh, it was at a time when they have this whole holiday when if you don't stop and do the holiday and go to the temple, man, it's heavy. And there he was, and... God protected him, and he's here tonight. He's back with us. And you see, there's this boldness. It gets inside of you, and it. Lloyd-Jones used to speak of it as the Spirit of God lifting you up and bearing you along. I always love it when I see the hawks by our house, and they're soaring, and they're not flapping one wing, and they go up and down and around. That's the Spirit of God. Lifting you, empowering you, bearing you along. And in reality, that boldness has as its source the fact that God is with you. See, Jesus stood out 
on the mid of the feast, midweek, and he was bold. And he even says it, my doctrine isn't mine, it's the Father who's with me. He stood out there because God was with him. God the Father was with him and he knew it. He knew he was right in the middle of the will of God. And thus he was bold. The story is told of a child who had to walk each evening past a very dark, spooky house. And so there were some adults who wanted to give him courage. One of them did this. They handed him a a good luck charm and they said, Here, take this and wear it. It'll ward off all of the ghosts. Another had a light installed on the end of the dreaded corner. Still another said very earnestly to the child, Don't you know it's sinful to be afraid? A lot of help that is, you know, how we are when we're like that as Christians. Trust God and be brave. Some great advice. And yet, really didn't help him at all. Then someone said with compassion, I know what it is to be afraid. I have the answer. I will walk with you personally past that house every single night. And with that commitment, the fear was gone as here was this big, strong adult personally walking him by. You see, that is the secret of our boldness. It's to know that God is with me. It's to know I'm walking with the Lord. I've waited on the Lord. I've sought the Lord and I'm obeying the Lord. Thus I know He's with me. And there is that boldness. It wells up inside of you. And it's something that is so tremendous when it's there. In Isaiah 46 verse 4, God says, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you. And I will carry you, and I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. Aren't those good words? Isaiah 46 4 is where that is found. Even to your old age, gray hairs, I am He. This is an especially important verse to me now in my life. As I've gone gray, pastoring this church. I didn't have one gray hair when we started this church. Now I don't think I have any other color. And very little hair as well. But um, I love that. I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. know, that implies that when you blow it, I'll help you get back so I can go on to carry you, go on to sustain you. And then, uh, actually, this was alluded to earlier. In Isaiah 30, verse 21, it's a great verse to put with Isaiah 46, 4. It says, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way... Walk in it. And whenever you turn to the right hand or to the left, wherever you turn, you will hear this voice saying, This is the way. Walk you in it. This is the tremendous thing of the life of the Spirit, where you expect God to lead. And you then see Him lead. It's kind of like talking about that incident over a word for today. And here is Jeff Smith. He's got a busy schedule. He's a great guy. He will return your call when he gets a chance. He's so busy that if you're lucky if he even gets your note for a while or if he's even in his office. He travels all over the world working with satellites and radios and transmitters and translators, all of that. For him to be sitting in his office in that account of, uh, you know, the man from England being there, then the man from Ireland and all of this... He was able, at the end of the meeting, to just very naturally say, Man, I don't know where all this is going. 
But I'm excited to see where it leads. That's the life of the Spirit. And that is this thing that is just so tremendous because you can then see that God is moving, get in the flow with it, open your eyes and your ears and say, Lord, is there anything else that needs to happen right now that I haven't thought of? Should I call somebody? Should I pray about something? Is there a verse in the Bible? And God leads you and you have that boldness. It's a spirit-filled courage. And we see it here in our Lord as He stands in the midst of the feast and begins to teach. Let's go to the second thing. His Spirit-filled ability. If you look at verse 14 again. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? It's interesting, if you, if you look at that, and you poke into some of the meanings of the original words, the idea here is part of what was going on was his accent. Having spent the majority of his ministry in Galilee, and really only at the beginning in Jerusalem and at the very end, with about six months to go now until the end, so most of the last couple of years in the Galilean area, he's coming out with... You know, Nazareth, where he grew up, is just up above the hills from Galilee. So that he comes with his Galilean accent, he should. And here are all the learned professors of the law. These are the professors of their, quote, seminaries. These are their leaders, the scholars. As you know, among very well-educated men, if you were to go to Yale or to Harvard or someplace like that, in our country, and to sit among a meeting of a bunch of these men, they would have this whole tone. Very educated women, the whole idea. It isn't necessarily even southern accent, Midwest, whatever. It's more of your whole mode of expression. So with all the learning comes a polish, comes a training, comes schooling on communication. We use the phrase, the man is an incredible communicator, you know, those kind of things. So one of the things that was really amazing them is the entire approach of Jesus. It's as though he came from, you know, Hicksville and the mountains of wherever. And, you know, the whole idea we would have of a of a hick, you know, the Hatfields, the McCoys type thing, little dandelion hanging out of their mouth, and they kind of talk like that. And so here comes Jesus. They expect him in their world to kind of do that. Instead, he gets up and he's just fluent. He has an eloquence that's mind-boggling. And it's as though he studied his whole life just how to learn communication. They're marveling at it. You see, it isn't that he had never studied. He had studied all of his life growing up uh, as a Hebrew boy. They had at the bar mitzvah, they would have to get up and uh, share from memory long Bible passages. He would have, as a man, read the scriptures on the Sabbath in the synagogue. It isn't that he never studied. It's that he never went to their, quote, universities. He never went to their seminaries. He didn't have this formal education to produce the product in front of them of this great communicator. So they're marveling. And the amazing thing is that what happened is that it came from the Spirit within him. He stands in front of them as a Spirit-made man. Everything that he was at that moment, the Spirit 
had produced. You know, we are all familiar with gray glory now and the harvest crusades and all that God does with him. You know, when you, when you watch at one of those crusades, Greg walk out on the platform, you know, give you a little update on this or that, and then he cracks a few jokes, then he gets into his message. Once he's rolling, you can't help but sit and marvel at the polish of the man as a communicator. In fact, when he's all done, at certain times I sit there and I think, I, in all my life, I've never seen anybody like this. In terms of timing and eloquence and polish, you know, he's funny, then he's serious, then you're crying, then you're laughing, you know? Then you want to repent all over the place. And it's all this, and here's this guy up there, you know? And you look at his background, there's nothing there other than being in the ministry as God called him. There's no formal education there to make him that. The Spirit of God has made him that. Do not limit what the Spirit of God wants to do with you. There was a supernatural excellence there. Secondly, in the Spirit-filled ability, he had a supernatural impact. We're talking about this ability from the Spirit. He had a supernatural impact. If you look at verse 15, it says, And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? In other words, how does he know all these truths? It isn't letters. It isn't that he was ignorant, didn't know his ABCs. It's how does he know this detailed doctrine, knowledge, insight. The idea that they marveled, it was, it was not only his approach, it was what was hitting their hearts. Something was happening to them listening to him that didn't happen when they listened to other people. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that the people, having finished listening to him, they were astonished. It's because there was an impact. It was the Holy Spirit hitting their hearts. You have to bear in mind, those that lived around Jerusalem and heard the teachers of the day were there listening to dead men, effectively, teach. And even those that were around Jerusalem, most of them probably had never heard Jesus teach, though they had heard of Him. So for many of them, for the very first time in their life, they're hearing the Word of God taught, and their heart is burning within them. And they're marveling at it. It reminds me of something that um, George Whitfield said one time, and he was talking about the impact of living, spirit-filled men when they preach. It was so amazing what he said. I've got this book. If you don't have it, you should get it. Victorious Christians You Should Know. It's one chapter biographies on some of the greatest saints who ever lived by Warren Wearsby. And this is a book you get, you read it, and you read it again and again and again. Here's what Whitfield said. God used George Whitfield to bring great revival to England and to the New England area, Philadelphia area in America. He said, I am greatly persuaded, he wrote this when he visited New England, that the generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. And he said, and the reason why congregations have been so dead is because dead men preach to them. You see, the idea is here they are, they're listening to Jesus, and he is so alive. 
that they're marveling. I, I never felt this before listening to someone teach. It's interesting to uh, read that Whitfield wrote that down. He had a very unique voice God gave him. Benjamin Franklin, who was actually a deist, not really a Christian, but a deist. God puts you here, gives you the gifts, and turns you loose kind of idea. He became friends with Whitfield. They were good friends. And one day, Whitfield was preaching, I think, in Philadelphia. Franklin was so amazed by this whole thing happening, listening to him, hearing his voice. He literally began to walk. And he walked and he walked and he walked. And he went the longest distance across Philadelphia. He actually recorded the distance, a couple of miles. And he said, I could hear that voice ringing miles off. No microphone. He didn't say no microphone because they didn't have microphones in those days. But he said it was, he was just so amazed. Whitfield would preach to 30,000 people at a time with no microphone. Of course, you also read of his effort. I remember reading of one night he had been doing that, preaching to these coal miners on a hillside, and God had unusually blessed, and he preached on and on and on. And unlike today where people at, you know, 45 minutes, they're squirming, they're yawning, they're checking their watch, they're dreaming of food and pie and coffee and TV. Unlike that, people would stand for hours and listen to the Word, often stand, let alone sit. Maybe that's the problem. Anyhow, could you all stand now? But I remember he said he went home and he started coughing and he was just coughing up blood all through the night. That's how much he had strained his throat to reach those lost souls for Christ without a microphone. The effort. But the whole point being being alive. The spirit-filled ability. Jesus teaching in a supernatural impact. I remember reading of uh, Charles Spurgeon where he said that he went one time, he had heard of George Mueller who had started all the orphanages. And Mueller also had a couple of churches that he pastored, and he'd travel around and preach in them. And so he was sort of amazed, Mueller of Bristol. And that's not too far from London, so Spurgeon wanted to go hear Mueller. So he went, traveled to hear him, sat in the back in the congregation. And later he commented, someone said, well, what did you think of Mueller's preaching? And it was a fellow pastor who already knew that Mueller had a, a simplicity about him. It was nothing, nothing like Spurgeon's eloquence, nothing like the free-flowing metaphors, descriptive language, all of that that Spurgeon had, but a simplicity. A man with a burden for kids and all these orphanages, but also had a couple of churches. So Spurgeon commented back, he said, well, you know, in terms of the content, he said, maybe on the level of a common Sunday school teacher. He said, in terms of the impact, extraordinary. He said, I have rarely felt the power of God piercing my heart as I did listening to Mr. Mueller the other day. I shall never forget it. You see, it's the life. It's the Spirit of God within you. Jesus teaching at a supernatural impact. And so it is that God continues to work that work through us today. It had a supernatural origin They said, how could you do this having never studied? You know, some of you may have um, wondered, feeling the call to the ministry, just exactly what should I do? Should I go to seminary? Should I go to Bible college? Should I do this, that, or the other? Well, here is Jesus. And they said, how could he preach like this having never studied? Okay, first of all, we realize he's God, okay? Having said all of that with the utmost respect... On the other hand, 
He is 100% man, and yet he's coming out with this knowledge. And the idea that I want to bring out here is this. There's always a pressure, as there was in that day, that you could not teach if you didn't have the formal education, and yet the teachers that they had who went through the system and came out dead the other side, they didn't move the people like this teaching that astonished them. So, what do you do? Should you go to seminary? Should you go to Bible college? Or should you let the Lord lead and buy a whole bunch of books? I would suggest, first of all, you let the Lord lead. No matter what it is you're facing, your decision. If He leads you to go to seminary, then you better do all the homework you can to find a living one. Because most of them have become cemeteries, not seminaries. And they're turning out dead men and dead women. You need to let the Lord lead. Then, if He leads you and you go that way, fine. But you need to make sure you still let the Lord lead all the way through. Now, others will not be led to go to seminary. I remember when I was laid up after surgery, laying in bed for weeks, and I picked up a book on preaching. The thrust of the book all the way through was you can't do this unless you can parse every verb, unless you can translate every passage, every line, every sentence yourself before you ever preach it from Greek to English or Hebrew to English. Don't dare get in the pulpit. And it was on and on and on and on like this. And, and finally, literally halfway through, I'm looking at the book and I'm going, where am I? I'm, uh, oh, I'm halfway through. I, and I think I am through. I'm going to quit the ministry. I mean, I can't do all this. And I laid there and I said, God, this is horrible. This is horrible. Thanks a lot, God. I've been told, it's right here in this book, that if I don't do all this and get all this education, then forget it. And then I kind of let the book slide off the bed onto the floor. And I, and I began to think, I said, but oh Lord, you, you've used me anyway. And you used me without all of this. I can kind of relate to Paul and Peter. Not Paul because he was educated, but Peter and James and John. And the Lord really encouraged my heart. And he, he drew me through the scriptures to, to comments like this, situations like this. The idea of the spirit taught man. If God leads you to ministry, man or woman, whatever the ministry, in the end you should be someone who the heart of it all of what you contribute is Bible, whether lived out or taught out. The idea is to be a spirit-taught man or woman. Yes, you have your books. H.A. Ironside, who was uh, one of the pastors of the Moody Bible Church, he drew such great crowds and was so effective and um, one day in, in class at Bible college, the students were being told how to, by their professor how to teach. Of course, he had never pastored, but was a good professor, and he's telling them exactly how to do it. And one of the students said, but Mr. Ironside doesn't do that at the church, and he's the greatest preacher we know. And the teacher said, well, if you're as called and gifted as Ironside, then you go for it. You know, so he wants to work in your life by the Holy Spirit. He wants to make you a spirit-taught man or woman. And there are certain things you cannot get from books that you only get from an interactive relationship with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 2.52, it's very interesting. I'll just read it to you. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
As the man, Christ, grew, he increased. One of the things I see there is that Jesus was always growing as a man. It is God's will. You can picture people around him that weren't growing. It's God's will that all of us grow. To talk of the Spirit-filled life is to talk of an increase. To talk of a progress. Increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. Are you growing? Are you pressing on to follow the Spirit? You see, that's where the ability, the boldness, all of this comes from the Lord. And it's amazing to track it. You follow Jesus as he goes to the river Jordan and he's baptized by John. In the water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove. We read of the Spirit driving him into the wilderness right after that where he was tempted of the devil. Then we read, he came back out of the wilderness, and it says in Luke 4.14, he returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and then he went around preaching. And by the time you catch up with him, and he's in the synagogue, and he reads from the book of Isaiah, where he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach glad tidings to the poor, and all of these to set the captives free. When you get all done, it says there in Luke 4.22, And they all marveled at the gracious words that he spoke. You know something? A spirit-taught man will cause you to marvel, or woman will cause you to marvel, no matter what it is they're talking about, if it's about the Lord. Yesterday, I went to have, or the day before, I went to have lunch with a, a businessman quite a ways from here. He's been involved with our church along the way in the past, and... We usually talk about his work and my work, you know, and this kind of thing. Instead, he just gave me a testimony of what God was doing in his life with his own problems. And I'm not kidding. From the moment he came out of his office with his head shaved, which I knew something was up, he came out of his office and he was on fire. And we got in his car and drove to the restaurant and he never stopped. He slides Warren Wiersbe's tapes on the book of Romans that he did in a conference back east over to me. He says, this has changed my whole life. And he says, when I'm done listening to him again for I don't know how many times, I'll slide them your way. I'll give them back because I was, you know, getting a tight grip on them. And all the way through the lunch, we just talked of God and my heart burned the entire time. And when I left, I realized he had everything I needed to hear today. It was all so fresh, so exciting. Spirit-taught men and women are always causing us to marvel, aren't they? And that's why fellowship's so important. We come together, you're down, another one is up, and we all leave encouraged. It's tremendous. So much we could say on this. You look at the first deacons when they had a problem with the widows. They said, look out among you and pick six men or so, filled with the Holy Spirit, and get them to wait on these tables, and the apostles will tend to the Word of God in prayer. And you find Philip and you find Stephen, men filled with the Spirit and faith. And they're waiting on tables with all that infilling and all that faith, taking care of the widows. But as they continue to increase in favor and stature with God and man, the next thing you know is you find Philip feels like he ought to go down to Samaria. He goes down to Samaria and revival breaks out. Philip, the one-time waiter of tables is now waiting on lost souls, bringing him the bread of God from heaven, and revival breaks out from this one of the original deacons. God is blessing him so mightily, and the next thing you know, in the middle of it all, the Spirit of the Lord comes to him and says, Okay, stop. Stop now, Lord. Now it's just happening finally in my life, Lord. Yeah, stop. 
Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Gaza Strip. You know what's out in the Gaza Strip? Nothing. Dirt road, maybe a Roman road, but nothing. Meets the Ethiopian eunuch who served with Candace, queen. All of this, very important man from Africa. He leads him to Christ, baptizes him. Then, just when things are getting interesting, the Spirit of God picks him up and takes him away. And he was found preaching at Azotus in another city before his shirt had even dried. I mean, the guy, here is the Spirit of God moving this guy around. If he had scienced it all out, he would have still been back in Samaria. And if he had lived like that to begin with, he would have never stopped waiting on the tables. You see, let the Spirit lead in your life. He's got so much to do, so much to do through you. So much we could say. They say to Jesus, you know, in verse 16, Ah, maybe I should just stop here. It's getting late. You've been sitting a long time. You're not like coal miners who could stand for hours. <laughs> we'll pick this up next time. It's the idea of spirit-filled confirmations where they say, Oh, only three of you mean it. And the rest of you just voted with your laugh, so we might as well cut off here. Why don't you all stand, and then we'll pray together while you're standing. Next time we'll talk about how as you obey the word, God is so faithful to confirm it with experience. In our day and age, we're into interactive games, CD-ROMs, all these things. The greatest interactive experience in all of life is Christ. Knowing Him, the leading, the filling of His Spirit. We'll save that for next time. This book is called Victorious Christians You Should Know. If we walk in the Spirit in our own unique way, each one of us will be victorious Christians you should know. And then we'll delight in getting to know each other as we've gotten to know Him, and we advance His work. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank You for this time together in Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the work of Your Holy Spirit. Continue, Lord, to open our eyes and ears and hearts to all the, the great work you're wanting to do in us and through us. Help us, Lord, to from time to time be able to look back at all that you've already done and to be able to stop and meditate and give you the glory for the great things you've done and then to thank you for those things and roll up our sleeves and look toward the future with great excitement of the things that are waiting for us ahead as we live the Spirit-filled life. And we will give you all the glory, Father, as we see you do things we never dreamed could be done in and through us. For we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.